0: Everyone, welcome to another very special edition of uh, of Like Trees Walking. Mike, what is this show?
1: Uh, sorry, I stepped away from the microphone. Oh, you that's stepped how, away too? For, Jeez, that's everyone's how stepping professional away. we are. No, um, <laughs> but no, I can tell you what the podcast is. Uh, I'm yeah. Michael J. Nelson, and my pastor is Pastor Dave Berge. And for years, we've gotten together and done this podcast where we talk about the important issues of life, of morality, religion, uh, humanity, ethics, morals. Um, whatever we've also stepped off the beaten path now and again Uh,
0: we've done interviews
1: during this period and we are fortunate today to be able to do
0: another one so joining us on the line all the way from uh upstate new york uh is chris arnati chris is uh, uh well you can tell us your life story at some point and how you ended up how you ended up in upstate new york on a the zoom call with us um of all things but uh but Chris wrote a book um, called Dignity, um, which is a, a collection of essays and, and photos really documenting your um, travels across the country. I became familiar with your work uh, in 2016 on Twitter. Um, uh, you, you were an interesting follow during that time just because you had been all over um, this country that uh, you know, people were trying to make sense of at this time what was happening. The sense of some kind of epochal shift or something was happening. Something had changed, and so uh, you were a- an interesting uh, commentator or just observer of this country since you had been to most places and spent time in most places where journalists typically, you know, go. The sort of cliche of go to a small town and find a diner and, you know, blah, 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 blah. And, and, uh, your experience was not that. So you were an interesting follow. And then you wrote this book, um, which I purchased actually right at the beginning of quarantine. And, uh, um, there's a, you're about your travels. And so there's a really interesting, uh, chapter and essay in there on, um, on the role of of religion that you saw across the country. But so Chris, that's my, introduction ish of you, but I, I, I don't want to fill in the blanks for you. And so, yeah. Could you just say who you are and how you ended up doing what you did and what you did?
2: All right. Well, thank you very much. Um, yeah, I wish I, I wish I had a bumper, a bumper sticker answer for that one. Cause I get asked that all the time, but, um, I'm sure. Um, I, um, I, I was a banker for 20 years, um, living in Brooklyn Heights, New York. Um, a successful banker at that. Uh, if you if you've ever read *Liar's Poker*, um, that's the firm I was in, um, Solomon Brothers. Um, or have you seen *The Big Short*? That was basically my life. Um, both of those. So that I mean, and uh, prior to that, I had been a particle physicist. So I I kind of pivoted from academics to, to wall street and that's not that crazy a pivot these days as people have seen the big short. No, there was a lot of, uh, there was a desperation for people who, who could at some point people in wall street realize that they're just playing with numbers and people who, who are good at numbers are probably good at wall street. So they brought in a few of us. Um, but one of the things I did all the time on my street, on my, on my time in wall street to relieve stress was go on these immensely long walks, like 25 miles. So I'm, I'm a big walker. Um, and uh, over the course of the financial crisis in 06 and 07, 08, those walks took on a different kind of flavor. Before, it was always kind of this kind of geeky thing of like, I was going to walk the entire length of New York subway system above ground, which I did. I was going to um, – I was going to touch every dead end in New York city, every dead end sign I could find, which, which I, I think I did. And then I was going to drink, I have a drink in every bar in Brooklyn. So all this accomplished by foot, but eventually those walks eventually became, um, I started realizing, um, while work was, while, the, while work was collapsing and, uh, and I was partially responsible for the collapse that uh, those walks became. What I really enjoyed about walks was talking to people and listening to people and the experiences they, um, they told me. And so eventually I brought my camera along and started photographing people and the stories they told me. And uh, six years later, I found myself in, um, in Hunts Point Bronx, which is the poorest neighborhood in New York city because someone told me not to go there. So I went um, and I ended up spending roughly three years documenting homeless addicts, um, uh, quit my job, did that. Um, and then once I felt like I had understood or I, I learned what I learned there, I wanted to see if what I had learned there was, um, um, uh, just unique to Hunts Point or was it true across the country? And so, I, I literally put, um, I think it's, I think I ended up retiring the van at 450,000 miles, um, or it retired itself. Um, but, so I put like 400,000 miles on my van driving all over the U S. Um, um, going to places, basically people told me not to go or places that people didn't even talk about. So, um, neighborhoods, um, and, and communities, you know, I, I'd go to the neighborhood. <laughs> I used to just ask like, um, a cab driver if if or, or just somebody I said if you if where would you tell tourists never to go and that's where I would go um and so I ended up doing that all across the country and when you found me um in 2016 or I, w- I was partially documenting what I was seeing on online um and what I was seeing was this immense frustration I mean I, I was seeing this starting in 2000 well 2012 I started seeing it but the frustration got rendered politically um through the election of twenty sixteen. So when Trump won, it really was no surprise to me. And in fact, I had said on Twitter that I thought that was gonna happen. And I got resoundly um attacked for that. Um but there was this just what I mean, you know, it was just this immense um project, which was never really a project. It was just me doing my thing because I was um, had made enough money on Wall Street that I could just do my thing. Um and uh, I ended up kind of formulating and putting together in this book what I hoped I had found communicated um, and that is the words, as as much as I could, I stayed out of the book and put the words to the people I met throughout um, the seven-year project, this process Um, and um, and what I, and, and, and kind of in, in overlaid on top of that sort of my, my views on what uh, I thought you know, what, what a lot of them were saying to me um, and how and how to make sense of that for the reader, um, and so the the title captures a lot of that. And I mean, the title is called "Dignity," and um, that was chosen because you know one of the the, the one salient feature that was trans, that that was true of all the communities I visited was people were struggling to maintain dignity and hoping to have dignity and and, and creating dignity in ways that were generally, to use a religious term, profane by the elites, um, you know, and. Um, the i think what probably caught your attention given this this podcast is um the, you know i i started this project as your usual um you know well educated um i use the term front row um to, to, you know, from the schoolroom analogy, you know, of all my neighbors and all my fellow bankers and all the lawyers and all the people who live in, you know, the the right neighborhoods, who have this big resume, I was that person, um, and like that person, like those people, I generally was an atheist. Um, I wasn't an obnoxious atheist. I was, you know, I was always respectful of of other people's views, but I did, you know, if push come to shove, I would say that basically religion was was. <laughs> kind of, you know, I saw people who, who followed faith as being kind of lesser people um, who had these kind of parochial, parochial views that were kind of misguided. Um, and, uh, you know, now I go to church um, and partly, you know, that, that's certainly directly from what I saw and what I saw was how essential the role of faith was um, in, in these communities I, I visited. Not just as a utilitarian function, not just as something that was, you know, the poor need need religion because they don't have anything else, but because they have, in many cases, they're closer to seeing the truth than um, than elites who, who you know, are, are, in my view, are shielded from from the truth.
0: And so, um, yeah, one of the kind of central concepts um, in your writing and in the book and you're thinking it seems to be this heuristic, like um, what you're observing, you describe as kind of there's back row. America and there's front row America. And then that's, that's a useful, um, that's like helps you, helped you understand what you were seeing. And so for those in our audience who are not familiar with your writing, could you just unpack that concept?
2: Yeah. Um, you know, quite simply, I mean, we all know about the divides in our country. We all know about the, the people, ed, ed, you know, the, the, the wealth divide and the race divide, but and the gender divide and all those things. But I, to me, what I found most striking what, what all these communities had in common that I was visiting, um, in contrast to the places that I had, the spaces I had occupied before and the spaces that people, you know, the, the media was focused on was education. You know, there was this massive educational divide, which is if I went into a Hispanic community or a black community or Somali community or, or, um, Mexican American community, um, or poor white community, um, that had quote been left behind or stigmatized or or was only getting attention for for the wrong reasons. Um, what de- what was what was defining feature about it was most of the people there there was very very few if any people there who had gone to elite colleges. And then when I went back home. At the time, a lot of the project, I was living in Brooklyn Heights, which if you know anything about New York City is a very exclusive community. Mm -hmm. Um, Even everybody, all my colleagues on Wall Street, all my neighbors, um, uh, you know, the, the the, the media that I was reading that was saying having you know the elite media the new york times the wall street journal the financial times what they shared in common even though they may look different and so one might you know one might have had a childhood in india another might have a childhood in uh, you know um in denver and another in in brooklyn what was what they all shared was after their childhood they all pretty much had the same path which is they all went through this the same set of institutions cornell harvard princeton um, and then got postgraduate degrees and were engaged in what I now call an, a resume arms race. They were collecting credentials from, and, you know,
0: and,
2: and they were, and that's what I call the front row. Yeah. The schoolroom analogy of they were the eager kids who always sat at the front and always wanted to do well in school and use that as a springboard in our current system to, to propel themselves to, 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 to positions of, of wealth, fame and, uh, and uh, stat high status. Um, uh, and the people I, you know again I was spending time with were united in the fact that they they really didn't have a resume to speak of um they didn't have a lot of credentials if they had gone to sc- school after high school it was community college or smaller state schools or smaller religious um private institutions um and very few went you know or trade schools um, you know they might have got a nursing degree or something like that uh it, but what was you know besides just that description what was what really struck me was their worldviews were different how they approached the world was just you know it is it's all it almost took me four years to realize that people are speaking two different languages because they have two different frameworks for thinking about the world and you know the way I think about it is on the front row if you're confronted with a problem you raise your hand and goes, ah, off to the library. <laughs> you know, you run off to the library, you look, you read through books, you study it and you attack the problem that way. And you build a spreadsheet with mathematical models. It's very analytic. And if you're in the back row, when you face a problem, it's, it's experiential. You, you crowdsource it through your friends, through your, through your, through congregants, through your minister, you you, you use your lived experience to kind of intuitively approach a problem. And, you know what I always—it's very hard to understand that for people in the front row who have this very analytical, rational framework, to recognize that the more intuitive, experiential framework is is valid. Ha, ha, you know, and can be valid in certain situations, and is a different way of embracing the world and a different way of thinking about the world—not a wrong way and not the, you know <laughs> the false way
1: you have a a concrete example of that of of the the difference in problem solving
2: um you, I think about it you know it's 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 it can be very simple as you know um, going you know me when i when I approach a problem i i literally build a spread you know if i think about it so i literally build a spreadsheet to you know right. and then the people I was spending time with was would would go out and buy a votive candle and, and sprinkle water and, and, you know, a very mystical approach of, you know, what am I going to do here? You know? And I'm, I remember once when I was with a homeless person who was worried they had caught a charge, um, you know, and the police were after them, I immediately was sitting on my laptop trying to, like, Google, you know, <laughs> the records department right. in the precinct. <laughs> and, and, and they were talking to friends, asking about, you know, what do, what do you think I should do here? And, you know, um, and, and they said, oh, we need to light some votive candles for you. <laughs> so, you right. know, but but ultimately they... They did the right thing because they have the lived experience of how to how to basically flee the police and you know they they picked up their their possessions and moved and I was still on my laptop trying to like right. i don 't see anything in Rikers. You're, you're, you're you haven 't even fake names
0: <laughs> um and so i mean you've probably uh i mean you've been to though i 'm a you know Christian and a pastor like you've been to way more churches than I have. Um, I mean, you know, cause I, I mean, like I went to my church growing up and that, you know, I'm in it. I bet my, I know my experience of, um, you know, re- religion in this country is parochial. Like I have not been to that. I've been to, if I've been to 10 churches more than once, that would be a, uh, you know, that'd be saying something. And so, I mean, like even in my own city, have I been to more than five, six churches? No way. So you have been across this country. Like, how did you, how did you end up as a part of this project? Find yourself going to churches? Cause I mean, you're going, you're documenting the lives of, of um, these forgotten places. And, and, and maybe before answering that, I just want to disabuse one notion. I think that I that I've seen a lot is when you say that, Chris, what you're talking about is it's coded language. You just went to like, you know, white like you went to kind of like old factory towns filled with white people, right? Is that is that what is that what your project was?
2: No, <laughs> I, spent, <laughs> I spent more time in minority communities. I mean, um, it's, it what's interesting is um the criticism early on of my project, which was in some senses about poverty was that I was spending too much time in minority communities and it was high, it was giving an ugly it was giving the wrong impression that in poverty was only something that blacks experienced and not something that <laughs> that whites experienced so I was I was kind of scolded into into focusing on the white working class um which ended up being you know the appropriate thing to do um, because you know it, it it ended up having a big impact on the 2016 election but yeah the, the people who say my book is about the trump voters as i say the the i'd say 75% of people in the in the book didn't vote um 50 over half the people in the book are minorities um but in terms of why why i ended up in churches it's, i mean it's very simple is um they worked you know i mean the people i was learning from the people i was listening to who was attempting to tell their stories that's where they went um you know and and like i can literally think of various neighborhoods i was in you know on the sunday mornings or 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 wednesday nights when the only thing that was open and and was functional was, was a church or or the McDonald's. That's the other place I ended up spending time in for the same reason, which is they are places that people use um, and they're functional Um, and whatever you may think of both, they're functional. And so, you know, I had a lot of, awkward moments initially i guess initially awkward at some level for me to just bust into a church a service being clearly an outsider um you know often i was the only white person um and but i was you know never never before never once was i anything but fully welcomed um no matter which and i again it was i tried to go to as many denominations as possible that were reflective of the community i was in so um the only places i didn't end up going were temples um um just because you know i, I didn't spend a lot of time in poor Jewish neighborhoods um but i was i spent mosques um uh, you know, but but where I spent most of my time was what I, I guess I, I've I've learned through this project a little bit of theology, and I guess I, I spent time theologically in the back row, um, kind of more, um, uh, more Pentecostal type um, services, more kind of fly by seat. Um, places that were, I mean, literally storefronts. Um, my favorite one, I think was, um, in terms of being a literal storefront, is I think it was an old Kentucky fried chicken that had been turned into into, into a church. I, I actually did a picture series of kind of what I, you know, just ad hoc spaces turned into churches, you know, like an old furniture store in a strip mall that had been kind of, um, kind of, um,
0: turned,
2: that had been, been outclassed by a newer, bigger strip mall, um, um, so places like that, and um, so I, I went because people were there. And then you know, you you can't you I I, I, I can't imagine anybody who doesn't spend you know go to like 200 different services across the country and not come out of it feeling moved at some level. If you if you if you if you don't see a genuine um, emotional power there. Uh, or spiritual power, then you simply, <laughs> I, don't know. You, 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 I don't know what type of person can walk into 200 different churches and not come out of it changed.
1: I have to say for myself, I'm encouraged that you see Kentucky Fried Chickens being turned into churches because the, the opposite trend of churches turning into museums or uh, uh, or Kentucky Fried Chickens seems to be the trend. So that that, that there is a counterfactual there at least encourages this uh, particular Christian. <laughs> so I'm glad to hear it.
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, um, I think I myself um, was raised Catholic. Um, even though my father was Jewish and my mother was Baptist, I was raised Catholic just because because the town we were in had six hundred people, of which five hundred and ninety were Catholics. So my dad's like, <laughs> "When in Rome, do as the Romans." Um, uh, and so, and our house was, I think, you know. One orange grove away from the from the from the church and the and the and private school, so that's what we 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 did. But um, so I would go to various um Catholic services for myself across the country, and you know, sadly, there just wasn't the energy that I saw um there mm-hmm. that I that I other than the Hispanic communities and the, and the Mexican communities in the in the the Catholic churches were very well attended and very um had a lot of energy. Um, but, you know, I was sad to see that there was a lot of, clo- there was a lot of, I mean, again, there a lot of, there's a lot of closed up, primarily Catholic churches, um, or, or larger churches, um, that are, there's one in Buffalo, New York. I can think of that's a shooting gallery now where people, where people use drugs, break in and use drugs. Wow.
0: So yeah,
2: yeah, um, yeah, I mean there there is there is also the, the 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 negative effect which I didn't write much about about of basically um churches that have also been fallen into disuse.
0: Sure. Yeah, and I mean it's uh, um I mean you think of I'm sure when I mean you look at like a place even like New York city or, um, uh, you know, people move in, um, it, they establish themselves. And and then over the years, like as communities turn over or they gentrify or whatever, those churches become less and less like useful or a part of the community. And then they become something else. Mike, like you're saying, um, you know, in the city of Minneapolis, I mean, it's a city that was a, if you look around of small neighborhood churches and as those congregations dwindle, um, you just see more and more. I mean, my good, good, one of my good friends, uh, pastors, a church that's not even a mile away from where our (laughs) congregation is and his is Methodist and they, you know, ended up still had a congregation, but the, the, his district, you know, wanted the money or whatever. And so they sold the building to a developer and it's going to turn into, it's going to turn into condos. So, um, and sometimes in especially these urban settings, like de- large historic mainline denominations kind of become real estate brokers Is one of their uh, – that's one of their major assets they have to keep going is is liquidating real estate.
2: Yeah, I mean that's certainly true in New York City. You see um, some of the uh, – as the kind of working class moves in and the – and the kind of younger kids move, move in as the working class moves out. Other than the immigrants. Um, that, but again, it's very different in immigrant communities. You go to, you go to, you go to Roosevelt Avenue in Queens, um, uh, Corona, um, Queens, um, is, is very religious. Um, and, and it's, you know, I think, I think I remember walking down Roosevelt Avenue once. And, um, I think it was on the seven train once uh, it was right after the Yankees won the world series, I remember noting that um, this is probably ninety three ninety four that um there were people reading about the Yankees winning the World Series on the subway um, which which goes through the heart of Queen's, Roosevelt Avenue, and five different alphabets
1: <laughs> oh, wow. it, it wasn't
2: just you know five different languages, there were five different alphabets, man, <laughs> yeah. all saying Yankees win, so um, <laughs> it's a pretty diverse place and um it's also very religious um, again, the you know, the, the immigrant community is pretty religious. Um, and I, and I saw that, um, you know, in, um, and I saw that for instance, in the the Somali population and, and where I spent time in Lewiston, Maine, um, you know, the mosques are full. Um, whereas the, uh, the, the more Catholic churches are not. So it's, it's a bit of a problem, um, that I think you see, or, but, but, what I found, you know, again, when I talk about faith, one of the things I wrote about that was kind of early, a predecessor to this book was, I think I wrote an article that went viral like in 2015 or 2016, basically saying that, you know, the people, I think they, they chose us, uh, the, the editors chose a kind of, um, um provoking title, something like, you know, the things that challenged my atheism were prostitutes or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, what I try to communicate there and then also in the book is that the faith is not necessarily organized religion. It doesn't always come through organized religion. There's a spirituality that, you know, is is often combined with a mysticism that uh, isn't just about, um, you know, Pentecostal churches or Catholic churches, but about this, you know, this kind of amalgamation of various uh, sacred texts that are kind of all put together into, you know, kind of like a cut and paste you people people hold on to the symbolic value of religion in a very deep way more than they hold on to the kind of um you know the rules and regulations that that, that it comes from so for instance you know votive candles are everywhere um uh, you know um symbolic symbolic jewelry um um you know, the sense of holy water, um, all those things factor in a lot to people and are very, very meaningful. You know, there's, I tell the story in the book of the, of the, uh, there's a pro I spent a lot of time with prostitutes cause that's what a lot of homeless people who, who, um, you know, are addicts do for work. And, um, there's a tran- transsexual prostitute, um, who's a big part of the, uh, of the project in the Bronx but you know i remember taking taking her home um to visit her mom and her mom's very religious and um you know i i, I prepared for this massive um theological (laughs) for this massive ugly battle when her mom basically basically told her that she has to you know she has to get right with god she has to clean up her act she can't be a transsexual she's got to be the boy that she was born to and i was just prepared to like load up the van and take her home and you know having a completely disaster evening as she started yelling at her mom instead she just simply said no mom that's not how i see the bible and she like you started quoting verse from the bible (laughs) you know and they so it was it was uh, it was only then that like there was this in physics term it was like this wave function collapse where also I realized, holy shit, Shelley, the transsexual prostitute, has always carried you know um this uh, uh this cross around her neck, and I've never seen her without it. And she's always been very religious, and I just didn't notice it, um, you know, because she lives on the streets. But then I remembered the time she had given me the cross. I remember one time she was going into a <laughs> – a dollar store to, 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 rob it, not rob it so much as, uh, just shoplift. And she, she would give it to me when she thought she might be arrested because they take it away at Rikers and she wanted me to hold it safe for her. <laughs> so wow. I like, and I was like, wait, she always has that with her. She, you know, she, she's moved like 15 times since i know known her, but she's always kept, kept this cross. And similarly, this other group, this other couple who I don't think they made it into the book, but, um, They, um, they probably lived in seven different places when I knew them. Um, They're currently now living in a car right off of Bruckner. Um, And um, (coughs) they always had this, um, this, 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 this uh, poster, um, this frame poster of the last supper that they held that they, they put wherever they went as well, as as well as a Bible. Those are the two things they always kept with them. So, it's, it's not necessarily attending church type religion, but it's very much a faith that's informed by by the sacred texts.
1: Would you say that and this is? You don't have to agree with this theory. You know, there's no atheists in foxhole. There's no atheists in the in the back row, as you put it. Do You find that because of the struggles, I mean, people I believe are naturally religious, and so naturally, when you're struggling, you you know, you turn to it, whatever form it, it takes as opposed to, like you say, the front row who can sort of work themselves above religion and I don't need it because everything's there for me. Is there anything to that theory?
2: Yeah, I mean, what I would say was, um, I kind of had the original, that sort of kind of utilitarian argument initially. I'm like, well, to the point where I would say that basically atheism is an into, is intellectual luxury of the, of the wealthy. Right. Um, you know, you can be an atheist. And then I started realizing that it's a little bit I don't want to say deeper, but I think it's more, more nuanced. And certainly um, uh, I actually think being, being wealthy and being successful um, limits your understanding of, you know, of the evidence for, for faith as, 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 as being true, as true as science is true, as true as anything is true. You know, there's this, when you're successful, see for me, and and I'm on very shaky theological ground because I'm not, I'm not schooled in theology. Um, this is all kind of observation, but the way I view it is that religion is, religion is about being, being in believing in faith or, or believing in religion is, is about a deep humility, recognizing that we, we don't, we're not in control of everything and we can't solve everything. And that there's, there's things bigger than us out there. Um, and that we're, we're not, you know, able to solve all our problems ourselves and figure it all out and I think when you're when you're you know I I look back at my friends who are bond traders and my myself as a bond trader and people who are very successful you know in the the resume arms race who have a lot of credentials it's easy to kind of think you have everything under control and you can figure it all out and so kind of you know you, you even think you can extend life to like 90 100 years whatever if you just do the right things um and so I think you you're kind of distant you distance yourself away from the evidence for for the value and the truthiness of of religion in a way that poverty doesn't so i i kind of re- would turn that on its head and say you know it's it's the elites it's the educated elites who are kind of missing this the picture from from their circumstances as opposed to the poor who are seeing the picture um because of their circumstances or 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 only able to see or, or forced to see the picture, as it were. Um, but but it's certainly true. You know, I, it's just like, for instance, the same couple I talked about who who went over five different places. You know, there's this really, I think, is well known now because more and people understand the, the opiate or addiction. But I, I there's this really shocking moment when you when you spend time among, among drug users when you realize that when someone overdoses. In the community, um, the first question asked to you um, is, "What was the brand of heroin they used?" Um, each 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 bit of heroin comes it comes in a basically um, an almost thumbnail, two thumbnail size little little white baggie uh, that is stamped with a brand, usually a red or blue stamp on it, um, because like anything, these are products. Um, I think there was one called total. I, I used to collect the brands, the pictures. I think someone, a friend of mine did a photo series of the different, um, you know, heroin baggies in their branding. One of them that was big when I was doing it was, um, there was one called Obama. <laughs> um, there was, there was another <laughs> called the one I ended up thinking was appropriately. I think I even wrote a short story about it was called total control. Um, <laughs> but so eventually they want to know the brand because that's good shit and good shit will get you really, it's clearly the person who OD'd, um, didn't, didn't dose correctly and they didn't dose correctly because the heroin was, was potent and powerful. So people go out and look for it. Um, it's more bang for the buck as it were.
1: And so when that's an advertisement for it, my God. Yeah, exactly.
2: And, And so when somebody gets, gets, you know, gets a hold of the, the potent heroin, like like you know if, if total control is 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 proven to be potent in OD ODing, ODing people go out people go out and try to get total control and they know that you know this is a dangerous this is a particularly dangerous, or, or, if, or let's say they go out and get a dime they go out and they they go out and get a bundle of 10 um they they fall into some money and they they go out and they buy 10 bags of heroin and they're going to do it all they're going to push themselves really to the edge what she would do this very religious couple was she would she would write her mom's her mom's phone number on her on her on her, on her belly and um in red marker so that if she did OD the paramedics could contact her mother um you know it, because if if you die in New York City I think people now know this a little bit better because of covid but if you die in New York City without without documentation uh, you end up on something called Hard Island which is a place in the East river where a, a million people are buried. Um, the cloak, the, the popper, the popper's field for New York city is a, is an Island in, in, in East river, but she didn't want to end up in Hard Island. So she would write, you know, her, her phone number on her belly with, with, with the red marker or blue marker. And, you know, so there's this real, you know, the atheist foxhole thing, there's this real connection to mortality. I mean, you, you, you're, you, you can't, you can't, not think about dying. It's just right there. It's 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 one it's one bag of total control away, um, and you're doing a bag of total control pretty regularly. So, uh, I think the connect the the, the the connection to to death certainly. I would reframe it as say makes people understand the power of faith, or, or or the 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 need for faith, as well as the truth truthfulness of faith that we we all are kind of temporary, and that there's this kind of much bigger thing beyond us, and that we're not in control, and that we're 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 just small small things in this in this much in this in this world, which is uh, hard for us to understand.
0: All right. Oh, uh, Mike. Yes. okay cut out for just a sec so um yeah uh so also you kind of talk about the like seems like mortality is an aspect of it also an awareness of kind of the the reality of evil there was that seemed to be an aspect of of people's faith and their experience like what did you what did you see in terms of that
2: um i think you know i think there's this um I think there's a, there's a, a sense that, you know, I, I, and again, I don't want to, I don't want to just turn to the utilitarian argument, but there's this real sense that there's this vast, you know, that, I mean, you know, deep down that the world is unjust or that, or that the human world is unjust. So, um, or, or, or that the human world as, as currently incarnate is unjust. Um, and so there's a sense that, you know, church is the only place that understand, that seems to also understand that, you know, that we're, we're, that, and yet you see this unjust world and yet you, you talk to, you know, people at the individual level who are, are good people. Um, so it's, it's kind of like this reconcile and church reconciles this idea that, you know, that we're, we're, we're better than this. Um, and that there's something bigger out there than that. Um, you know, and, and, I think there is a bit of utilitarian of like, you know, you got no place else to turn, man. (laughs) And I I think a lot of it's, a lot of it's cultural, which is, you know, I spent a lot of time taking people, a lot of time in, in, in Rikers. Um, visiting people in Rikers which is probably the most depressing thing you can do is to visit people in prisons much less Rikers i mean th- th- there's there's a there's a ranking of um the different um, uh, places people are incarcerated and Rikers has to be the worst um just just to visit is is hell um i mean it, it literally is like takes me eight, it takes it was an eight hour ordeal for me just to visit someone for half an hour in Rikers um,
1: oh man Oof. um
2: wow. yeah and and you know i'm you see people going every weekend with their family to go to see relatives. It's just it's just awful, but um, you know you go to Rikers, you go to you know I've taken people to the hospital, I've um, taken people to detox, I've taken people to the you know the Social Security office. I've taken these are all places without soul, like they're you know just aesthetically they got linoleum floors and harsh harsh lights and bureaucrats who yell at you and tell you to follow the rules and you walk into a church and it's entirely different it's warm and often the pastor or the minister um, and the other congregants they 're like you they they understand you know they understand your path through through life and they understand you, you, you at a lived experience they 're not the police station, which is just brutally cold and 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 you know it's there 's just a at a at a very at a very advertising level you know churches just are so much i mean they, they have the only word I can come up with is they have, they have a lot more soul they 're a lot more warm. Mm-hmm. um and I, I don't. I think people misunderstand how how deadening kind of the secular bureaucratic world is, and how unappealing it is, and how how it doesn't give people any dignity. You know, to use a t- t- I mean, churches give people dignity, and I think you know, I think people recognize that, and regardless of you know the essential truth behind it, at a very pragmatic level, I mean, people want to spend time in places that. Um, that you know that treat them with treat them with dignity as opposed to people treat them like a like like an like you know an institution that's i mean the you know the institutions for the, the institutions that serve the back row at almost every level have failed them and not, not people have become very cynical about them and and religion is the one direction you can go where you you don't feel the cynicism that's a great
1: uh that's a great illustration the uh if if you know the average person listening to this think about a life lived you know at the at the DMV uh and what that contrast of church would be to to that we've all been in those you know facing those lines and faceless bureaucrats and now move over here and what do you do you know that that's uh i mean i can picture it right now as a hell so that is a fantastic illustration I mean, I think there's a, the there's
2: a there's a there's a I think there's a picture I took in a detox that I don't know if it made my book. And I forget the exact. It's you know, it's it's a, again. I was just in one of these maddening five hour waits to get someone into detox or something, and you know, I think there's a sign say there's there's a sign on the wall, a dusty sign on the wall next to a dusty TV. And it has two things on it. One is says hope offered here, and the other one is don't change the TV. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that, <laughs> you know? is in the, that is in the book. I'm sure that's in the book.
2: And it was yeah, just like,
0: this, this is your message.
2: <laughs> I mean, it's just like, you know, and so, you, so even, but, but it's also the, you know, and and I think, you know, some people in the theological community have asked me my advice. And it was like, again, I don't want to, say one method is better than the other, but the people that I have always felt um, theologically or the ministers or who who, who get their congregants at a, at a lived reality level. And that's like, for instance, for me, it was basically the Franciscan friars who I would run across periodically. You know, um, as a Catholic, I'd run across, you know, in the, one of the few people I would find in these communities is I'd be out there walking the streets as the only other person who wasn't you know, a resident, which would be every once in a while, someone coming around, coming was a Franciscan friar coming through their robes. <laughs> you know, and they completely get it. Um, they get the community, they get the people, and you know, they don't. Ha- they, when people, you know, when people complain to them, you know, they they get the they get they get the they get the complaints, and they understand what this person because they've heard them so many times. And I think you know, I, I negatively reviewed this book that was done by Nick Kristoff called Tightrope, which kind of follows the same terrain as my book. Um, I guess him and his wife um, spent like six months in their old hometowns um, documenting, um, you know, the opioid addiction. Um, and what struck me about the book was, and what frustrated about me, the book, and you can, I wrote, I wrote a review for it, for I think the American, some, some left-wing publication, I think it's called American Progressive or something like that. but was they kind of walk they, they it's like a lot of non profits who are very well intent secular nonprofits who are very well intentioned i mean they're just outsiders who kind of like oh well i see i you know treat everybody like a victim who's only who's who's in who's solu- the solution to their problems is you know we we need to get you to we need to get you educated we need to get you more education we need to like get you to do what i did which is get into this resume arms race and it's just this really cold you know uh, what i cluelessness that treats people like they don't have you know in a very i say in a very undignified way, which is as kind of victims to save as opposed to people who actually need to be listened to and allowed to do what they want to do um you know it's just this very cold you know one of the things i say is in my p i i mention is you know if a homeless person um or a poor person, or a lot of people I documented in my book, were to walk on a college campus, they they call the police on them, <laughs> you know. But yeah. if if they walk into, um, you know, if they walk into McDonald's, for instance, they're, they, they they don't they can just sit in a booth and be and relax. And often when they walk into churches, they'll be welcomed into into the church. I think there's a very different approach, you know, between the cold secular world that just you just studies them you know they're 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 things to be studied or things to be um you know things to be studied or things to be saved um you know t- to get educated um as opposed to things to be respected at their uh, as 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 equals
1: yeah i mean the, the first thing that i don't think any human on earth any adult human wants to be infantilized by anyone else you know even if I'm here to help here, I'm patting your head. Like that's, that's not an approach to helping me. I'm not inclined to uh, take that uh, from anyone.
2: Yeah. I I mean, it's, it's, it's just, it's just, you know, as it, again, like what I try to do in my book is have people just, you know, I try to stay out out of the conversation and to some degree and let people listen um, to, to the, what people are saying, what what the people I'm interviewing are saying, or what what they said to me, as opposed to what I wanted to tell them, you know. Um, but uh, you know, it, it it sounds odd for me to say religion does a better job of not trying to save people, um, but it but it does because it allows people to choose, you know, on their own, um, and it, it's very it's very upfront. Is like you follow these rules, you know, you're welcome here, and you can keep trying and we'll keep trying as opposed to like we need we need to get you to move um we need to get you to college we need to get you to study we need you you have to do all these things
0: well there's a sense too of uh you know at least in christianity that like salvation is supposed to be this great equalizer you know each and every person from the wall street quant to the homeless prostitute uh uh, to the severely mentally ill person, like all are the ideal, the, the ideal is you're all equal at the foot of the cross. Like each and every one of you, there is no self salvation on offer. And so, you know, getting, uh, <laughs> getting saved, you know, in, 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 in the language of back row religion, you know, are you saved? Which is a, that's a common question. Um, yeah. I gotta it, ask that like, a lot. <laughs> yeah, are, 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 are you, I get ask that question too. Um, but like, and and uh, you know, are my, my, you answer, saved?
2: my answer, was always, I read the Bible.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I read the Bible. That's, so you know, are you saved? It's like, well, yeah. the 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 offer of salvation is exactly the same, and the sort of solution to the problem, uh, the ultimate problem, human problem, which in Christianity is sin, alienation from God is faith faith in christ which then you know allows you to enter into this um new relationship and new re- new life and that's exact like there's no credentials requ- no credentials required yeah. um for that no education right. necessary for that um and that's actually for, for people in the front row of front row and i include myself in that like i didn't go to any elite school but you know i mean i would say well maybe that's not true maybe my seminary runs elite i don't know if that's true but, you know, I went to college and I got a, you know, the MDiv and, um, I mean, so I, I, I'm not excluding myself or saying I'm some sort of, uh, populist or, uh, parent, you know, tribune of the people or whatever. Um,
1: I'm here, by you, the way, to represent the C minus student who sits somewhere in the middle.
0: <laughs> but that's just because you didn't try, Mike. That's maybe the <laughs> most annoying. What's the most annoying person is the uh, is the front row person who puts who like is like I could I. I'm, I'm the, the jackass run, clown. I know. I know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But no, just to say like that. A uh, um, sometimes I think you know it, I I want it to be more complicated than it has to be because that's a uh, if I can make. Um, if I can make my religiosity more sophisticated than other people, that is also a class and status marker for myself and um, my congregation, I guess too.
2: One of the things I, I, I talk about in my book is what you, you hit on is a no credential thing. I said, you know, the elites, the front row, whatever you want to call them, i um, well, just myself generally rank people by the resume, by, by credentials is how many credentials you can get. And I think the, um, uh, you know the, the the I call you know the, I call the non-credential forms of meaning are, are two of the, two of the big ones are are faith in place. You, you you're just you don't have like you said you don't have to have a resume to walk into a church. You're all equal once you do so, and I think that's very counter to the kind of meritocracy educational meritocracy we built, which is you know like the first one of the first things that people ask you you know, on wall street is like, where'd you go to school? <laughs> like, you know, it's like, let's compare resumes. It's like, as if that matters, you know, and it does matter as, a, as opposed to, um, you know, kind of just uh, you, nobody, and how much money did you make last year? Those are the two big things, you know?
0: Hey, how I many have people a,
2: asked you? Oh yeah, Mike, go ahead. And well, go
1: ahead. well I, I, it's, it's, I don't think it's, it's not at all off topic, but, uh, I'm just curious about your, your personality? Have you always, I mean, this is obviously people don't follow this, the path that you have followed very often. And have you always been that way? Like I'm, I'm just aiming to do, uh, you know, like you talk about your needing to walk to every dead end or whatever. Is that something you've always done in your life or did something happen in your life? If you're you know, comfortable talking about it, but I I I find that fascinating.
2: I think that, you know, a lot of people have trouble Understanding for the banker to to you know to switch from banker to hanging out with addicts thing, um, but I think the the bigger change in my life was becoming a banker. That was the bigger oddity. If people had met me, you know, when I was nineteen or twenty, they would have not been surprised I'm doing what I'm doing now. They would have been surprised to find out I had become a banker. Okay. Um, okay. Um, but um, the I've always been experiential. Um, I've always believed that um, you know. I think someone once described me as the happiest when I'm in a place I shouldn't be. <laughs> so, um, you know, it was somebody who used to go on these walks with me. Eventually they got tired because like, they like, I'd say, they'd say, Oh, look, you know, it's it's a, it's a Mexican bar and there's, they don't speak any English. I was like, let's go. <laughs> right. And they're like, it's like, I don't want to go to a Mexican bar where no one speaks English. And I ended up being my favorite bar in New York. I remember like, he's the one who pointed it out to me and he wouldn't go in. And I ended up going there pretty much every Friday night. It's, <laughs> the, Scorp- it's the Scorpion bar on Roosevelt Avenue. I mean, it was like, you know,
1: um, Maybe we can make them a sponsor of this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> there, there, there,
2: there are two competing. I, there are two competing scorpion bars: There's a red scorpion and a yellow scorpion bar. So,
0: <laughs> what's the real one? What's the it's legit? Like famous the, the
2: one. The one I like is the red, the yellow one. But, but, but some people claim that the red, red one's better. But I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I have my allegiance to the yellow one, based solely on the fact that I went there first. <laughs> yeah,
0: the
1: Philly cheesesteak of Mexican bars. Argument. <laughs> yeah.
0: G- Pat Genos or Pats, right? Yes. <laughs> um but um but
2: i know i mean like i've always kind of and so that's kind of the when people said you you can't go to hunts point it's too dangerous i mean it was kind of like that was like catnip for me
0: that was, the, that was the forbidden fruit uh that that you had to go that you had to go taste
2: i mean but yeah. part of it's part of it's because i've always found out that they're, they're mostly they're wrong like you know it's like that guy saying i think it's too dangerous in the scorpion part The scorpion part was was perfectly you know was perfectly welcoming and and perfectly and and, you know same thing with many of the churches I walked into I mean they look up you know I wouldn't say it became a challenge because it was because I generally wanted to be there but you know to to walk into just like a the most kind of unwelcoming looking place just because of of racial differences or what what have you or I'm not supposed to be there um, has never been a problem for me because this always ends up I've always ended up Finding out that it's I don't it's never really taken a wrong
0: turn, hmm. um well, you've been very, very generous with your time, chris, and so i I just have one last question. this is a bonus question, and this is off topic, but it's related to something you brought up at the very beginning, so you were a quant right on mm-hmm. Wa- you were on Wall Street, you were a banker, you were there when um the financial crisis hit, which was like That's seemed right. like the worst thing ever till maybe the pandemic. That's I, right. You know, I, I don't know. Uh, tell our audience very quickly, uh, since you were there, what ha- what happened? What happened? <laughs> Can you summarize that in five? Yeah, minutes um,
2: greed. Um, it was greed. It was classic old greed. Um, you know the the um, the banks got. Um, you, people never talk about. People talk about reckless borrowing you know, reckless people, people get into reckless debt, but people never talk about reckless lending, which is um, the banks decided to just lend, you know, just lend out too much money and they got way too leverage. So a bank is always leveraged. People don't want to know that. Meaning, meaning that they, they have less money. Um, They have less, if everybody went and tried to take out their money at the bank, they couldn't because the bank's, invest um, let's say 20 times more than their than the money that they have um, in deposits Um, at the height of the crisis they were doing it like 45 times so they were investing and betting on all sorts of things um, well beyond what they should have been and it all kind of worked it's kind of like if everybody's doing it it keeps happening and happening, and then eventually it just it, it just you ran out of the next fool. It, you need the next fool to you know t- to do this, and then the next fool just fell apart, and the whole thing blew up. Um, but at the source was greed, because the dirty secret about the whole thing is the people most directly responsible for the crisis, like the people in my firm. I think my firm lost $55 billion or something like that. Um, oh. that the government, that the government bailed it out. Um, the people who lost the bulk of the money got paid well, um, you know, because on wall street, you get, you, you get paid and you, you get paid and you win and you don't, you don't get, you don't have to pay if you lose. You just get a, you, pay is a pay is just like, you get X amount per year and then you get a bonus. Um, and your bonus is tied to how much money you make. The firm, uh, i.e., how much you bet. And so, you 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 make a lot of money in the good years. So you make, let's say, let's say you make the firm fifty million, twenty million dollars betting a year. You get paid well. You get a percentage of that twenty million dollars. And then you do that for five years, and then six years, and on the six years you lose a billion dollars. They don't they don't take money away from you right so
0: (laughs) they don't go back and claw claw away that money. no they don't the
2: the the term is clawback and there should be a clawback but they don't have a clawback and so over your aggregate over your aggregate six years you've lost 900 million dollars but you yourself have been paid you know some rough estimate some percentage of uh, of 100 million dollars
0: so how do you get in on that racket
2: well, that's, that's, that's what I got lucky. Um, I, I didn't know. I didn't know I was getting in on that racket. And when I got there, I was like, I just thought it was like a cool math problem. Like I had, you know, I got a PhD in physics and um, I, I was, um, I, I wasn't particularly good enough at physics to, 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 to have a career in physics. Um, but I had this PhD and people were, I was looking for my next career. So I was kind of spent, I spent my last year as a grad student writing my thesis and then studying two other, two topics as a possible next career. One was finance and the other was, um, meteorology and, um, you know, finance wanted to pay me a lot of money. Um, and I just, it was a fun problem. Like a ma- from a purely mathematical perspective, what I was doing was, was mathematically fun, but it, I, I didn't know a difference between a stock and talking bond when I got to wall street, it was really embarrassing. Like I, you know, I, I I knew nothing. I I look back at the job offers I got and the one I took and it was just like, you know, it was just basically random. Like I had no, I had no, it was just me walking, you know, someplace you shouldn't be. And I remember my first day there was August 23rd, 1993 or 1992. Um, And I just remember just sitting on the trading floor going, what the fuck did I get into, man? (laughs) 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 I just, was like, I got there at six in the morning and by the, I didn't leave until eight that night. And I just went home and I'm like, what did I get into, man?
0: (laughs) Oh my gosh. Well, I think that was I yeah, that that was that was, I, I just had to ask when you when you put that yeah, up. I'm there. sorry. I hope
2: that wasn't too much.
0: No. No, that great. was perfect. That was perfect. 5 minutes 5 minutes or less. You you hit it. So, I, I think Mike you Yeah, got anything been, else?
1: No, this has been fascinating. Really this appreciate your really time. What a
2: Well, thank you very much. And I, I should have I should have listened to you talk about theology actually and and and
0: what I got wrong. <laughs> no wrong answer. no 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 no, no we, we 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 brought you yeah <laughs> that's that, no but we we i feel like uh we, we were able to bring it to you brought us to a point and i feel like you let me speak just the right thing and so okay. i pre i yeah yeah we brought it to the right place but i mean you just have a a vast experience in terms of seeing the role of religion and faith across this country in a way that i think very few human beings uh have um and, and uh and, and so i was just very interested in once i read that chapter Um, in dignity to to talk to you about it. And once I saw you on Twitter kind of broadcasting that you're pretty much willing to talk to anyone, I thought, well, we're anyone, you know? Yeah, we uh, qualify.
2: (laughs) um, Yeah, I mean, I also was recently contacted by McDonald's Corporation because apparently – not many of their upper management have actually been in as many McDonald's as I have been, and so they actually <laughs> wanted to talk to me. I is mean, the I've shake been,
0: machine broken at every Mcdonald's in America or what's the deal with that
2: you know um every it's a class thing I hate to be that person, but it really is a class thing it's It's like. You almost, I almost can tell you if if the if if the ice cream machine is going to work, latte machine or ice cream machine is going to work based on the income of the neighborhood, or if it's not. Um, <laughs> and um, my tradition when I was on the road was to spend my nights um, in McDonald's. I mean, just for a variety of reasons, but and have one in the morning. I'd have my latte, and um, and at night I'd have my ice cream cone, and um, and it, like it just became like. I would get neither of them in the neighbor. most of the neighborhoods I was saying, you know, my only other advice is if you, if you ever McDonald's lattes are actually really good. People don't know that, um, but it's made by a machine, which I think I know how to run better now than most employees because I yeah. end up um, like helping them fix it. Um, but don't get the don't, don't go go for the low fat um, uh, latte because in poor neighborhoods because it, the milk doesn't move and is always rancid.
0: Um, oh geez. oh that is a good all, pro tip.
2: And the other thing is the other pro tip is if you're if you don't like sugar in your um if you don't like sweetener in your in your coffee or latte, you gotta say like five times, especially in Hispanic neighborhoods. No liquid sugar. No liquid <laughs> sugar. No liquid flavoring. You you, uh, (laughs) uh, sucre. uh, Well, I used to say uh, sucre diablo. (laughs) Sucre is (laughs) a devil.
0: (laughs) Oh man. Well, Chris, they thank you for doing this. This was really really interesting. So, all right. um,
2: Thanks again, and uh, I'm sorry. And take care, guys. Okay, and be safe. You too. Yeah, uh, we
0: we will absolutely. All right. We'll uh, commend your book to
1: our listeners. Thanks so much. Chris. All right, yes, cheers. Course. So.